What's on your mind, ABQ? We have customer stories every month at our monthly staff meetings, and I think I've cried at 80% of them. What's happening in your neighborhood, ABQ? The Huning Castle Country Club neighborhood. They wake up and think, gosh, there's a lot of filming going on here, and maybe we're cool with that, and maybe we're not. What are you doing, ABQ? So right now we're sitting in the cage. Um, the rage room, we give you some protective gear. We send you into a room with a crowbar, a pipe, and a mallet, and you get to just break shit. That sounds like a really good time. <laughs> What's on your plate, ABQ? I'm thinking back now, you know, geez, you know, I always did want to start a burger joint, and this is a great room. I'm Ryan. And I'm Lindsay. And this is the What's Up ABQ podcast. Every week, join us for the people, the places, and the events you need to know about in Albuquerque. Find the What's Up ABQ podcast on your favorite podcatcher or go to whatsupabq.com. The Oracle Network. Look deeper. This is True Consequences, a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico in the American Desert Southwest. Today's promo is What's Up ABQ podcast. Check them out. They're a lot of fun. Just a couple of quick announcements. I'm happy to announce that True Consequences is now part of the Oracle Network. Check out all the amazing shows on the network by going to theoraclenetwork.com. That's the Oracle, O-R-A-C-L-3, network.com. I'm doing weekly live streams on getvocal.com every Thursday night at 8 Mountain, 10 Eastern. I will be discussing episodes doing Q&As, and I will even have some special guests on. Come hang out with me on Get Vocal. Oh, and did you know that I have True Consequences merch? Get your La Llorona shirt or your True Consequences hoodie today. You can find links to my merch at trueconsequences.com. If you buy any Justice for Jacob item, half of the proceeds go to the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And finally, I'm launching a new podcast that will start at the end of the current season of True Consequences. The show is all about the paranormal in New Mexico and the surrounding areas. I will be joined by my co-ghost, Alex, and the show is called Dos Pequeños. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook by searching for D-O-S-S-P-O-O-K-Q-U-E-N-O-S. If you enjoyed listening to this show, please rate, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcatcher. True Consequences is listener-supported. To support this show, go to patreon.com slash trueconsequences. You'll get access to episodes early. You'll have ad-free episodes as well as other fun perks. You'll even get a free sticker from me. To keep up with all my updates, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at trueconsequencespod and on Twitter at trueconspod. This episode deals with issues that may not be suitable for all listeners. It discusses domestic violence and murder. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, please call the Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You may remember my friend Edna from part two and three of Jacob's story. Edna had come to know a person named Patricia Platero as she was working with her to try a domestic violence case against a man who had beat Patricia up. Edna was very connected to this case, both personally and professionally. And while recording one of Jacob's episodes, Edna brought this case up and I asked her if she'd be willing to share it on True Consequences. I'm so grateful that she agreed to share this story. It's heartbreaking and it's still unsolved. If you have any information related to the death of Patricia Platero, please call Crime Stoppers or go to p3tips.com. So today I'm joined by Edna and we are discussing the unsolved murder of Patricia Platero. I am Eric carter Dean. And this is True Consequences. So I remember when we met that last time in my kitchen and we ate some yummy brunch. (laughs) Um, You started talking about this case about your friend. 
Yes. And um, I really wanted to give you a chance to tell her story on the show. Um, because as far as I know, it's still not solved. Is that correct? That's correct. It's still an open case, even though it's gone cold. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that the entire case file um, is with the homicide unit of the Albuquerque Police Department. And I actually requested a copy of the file and mm-hmm. I was not given permission to, to get it because it is still an open case. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of things that really probably can't be talked about and shouldn't be talked about because of that. So um, definitely I'll respect, do my best definitely respect that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's go <laughs> ahead and, and jump right in and, and let's start talking about uh, your friend, Patricia. Let's, so, sorry, I was going to say, if you can just give me a little bit of information about who she was and what she meant to you. So Patricia, uh, Patricia Platero, she died in 2015. And I first came into contact with Patricia when I was prosecuting a boyfriend of hers who had beaten her quite badly within an inch of her life. Mm. And her case was typical in the sense that because she was Native American, there was a bias, I guess, against her from the police in the terms of of the police expecting Patricia to to participate in the prosecution of of this guy. But <clears throat> importantly, that bias often starts before it often starts from the moment that a crime is even committed against a native woman. Mm-hmm. And the facts of that case were that she and her then boyfriend were at a park over on San Pedro and like Trumbull was in the Southeast and it was November and he had beaten her unconscious and left her essentially for dead in the park. And she had gotten up and stumbled to the street and had fallen unconscious into the street. Mm. And a guy, uh, a guy uh, driving his vehicle actually almost ran her over thinking that she was just garbage in the gutter. Oh my God. And stopped to move the, the trash out of the road and realized that it was a human being. And that guy, oddly enough, is married to a friend of mine, completely randomly. Wow. And he, it's, it's really bizarre. And he is a dispatcher for the Kirtland Air Force Base Fire Department. So <clears throat> he called law enforcement. He called 911. He called law enforcement and they came out. And initially she was transported to UNMH with, um, I think she had a broken orbit bone and some other head injuries. And the initial responding officer, I don't recall having done anything really helpful to the case other than get her transported to the hospital. And later the detective that was assigned to the case was this guy by the name of John Kelly who was a wonderful cop and he actually died of a heart attack on duty in March of 2015. Oh my gosh. So, yes. So and he was only 35 and so there was a lot of uh weird connections with this case. So uh initially I recall knowing that Patricia was transient. Mm-hmm. And obviously with a transient, with our native transient population, they were any victim or any, any person involved in crime, either as a victim or a witness would, would be notoriously difficult to get a hold of because of the nature of the population. Sure. And the first thing that I noticed about Patricia is that she would call me once a week to keep in touch with me and say, Hi, Edna, this is Patricia. What's going on with the case? Um, you know, I'm here, I'm there. And and what I learned about her was that she is from Tahajali. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she is Navajo, she's Dene. And her family is the 
the Plateros, the band, the Plateros, and she actually paid, played the drums for that band when she had been younger. Mm-hmm. I don't recall how old she was when she died, but she she was a musician and she was also a jeweler. She was a great jeweler, from a what great, I understand. Yes, an incredible jeweler. And her mother is Fanny Platero, who is also a, an incredible jeweler. And so I learned that what Patricia would do is she would go to her workshop in Tahajale with her mother, where they had horses and her little chihuahua, who I believe's name was Chewy. She would make her jewelry for a couple of months or weeks, typically. And then she would come to Albuquerque and she would sell her jewelry um, to the shops, the the Palms, which is mm-hmm. located at Lomas and 15th, and Sunwest Silver, which is located at Lomas and 4th. And I think Skip Mazels, I'm not sure. So <clears throat> the jewelry buyers at both of those stores would uh, give her either custom orders or based on requests from, from their population, their clientele or Patricia and her mother would just make stuff. Mm. And um, she, Patricia specialized in cabochons or which are sort of a specific way of setting um, jewelry, setting stones in jewelry. And then she would buy a lot. She was an alcoholic and she would buy alcohol and she would sort of party in Albuquerque for you know a couple of weeks maybe a Mm -hmm. month or two spend all the money she had earned and then she would go back to Tahajale um and so sometimes she would call me from Tahajale sometimes she would call me from Albuquerque sometimes she would call me intoxicated sometimes she would not be intoxicated sometimes she would come to the office with her dog Chewy and she became a beacon for me in my prosecution because she was so adamant about this guy being held accountable. And additionally, she was a witness in another domestic violence case and a victim in another domestic violence case where she had witnessed a guy beat up his girlfriend quite badly. And when Patricia came to his aid, he attacked her with a shovel. Oh my God. Yeah. So Patricia had a lot of violence in her life and, but she was very uh, adamant that both of these guys be prosecuted. And oddly enough, the other case also involved detective John Kelly So in March, when Detective John Kelly died, uh, those two cases became less prosecutable, if you will, Mm -hmm. because when you lose a witness, that's that's never good. And obviously, I was very concerned about losing those cases because both of the cases were brutal um, and involved Native women, which was always something that I felt like you can't just think, oh, it's just another drunk native and to hell with them. I'm very, everybody deserves justice. So nobody nobody deserves to be treated that way. And nobody deserves to be beaten up like that. Right. And nobody deserves to be dismissed just because they're transient or have alcohol issues or because of their race. Right. Because of their race. And so Patricia was really a beacon for me on both of these cases because she was so consistent in checking in with me and she was so delightful every time I, every time I talked to her. And, and I, I honestly don't recall the, the nature of those conversations, but, and they were always relatively brief, but they were consistent. Mm -hmm. And I had a victim advocate whose name was Letitia and uh, she, Patricia, would also check in all the time with Letitia separately from checking in with me. So there were these sort of layers of, of um, Patricia, Patricia checking in. And um, so the last time I spoke with her was April of 2015. And one day in June 2015, I get a call from our front desk people at the district attorney's office here in Albuquerque. 
who tell me that a woman by the name of Fanny Platero is in the lobby and is unconsolable. Hmm. And that she's saying that she needs to talk to me. And I didn't, <clears throat> frequently if that happened, I would come down just to kind of see, her name didn't ring a bell with me. I didn't know that she was Patricia's mother. So I went downstairs and um, she was crying, which for a Dene woman was very shocking. And Obviously very, something was wrong, right? Something was very wrong. Right. And she begged me to tell her the last time I had talked to Patricia. And I said, well, now that you, you bring it up, it's, it's been a while. And so I looked in our computer system and I, I saw that the last time I had spoken with her was early April and her mom had Patricia's dog, Chewy with her. And, uh, she said, there's, there's no way something's wrong. Patricia would never leave Chewy. Patricia would never leave Chewy and Patricia would never not keep in touch with you. Mm -hmm. And so what I gleaned from that is that Patricia had spoken to her mother about the cases, I assume, or me and Letitia, but nonetheless, her mom knew, knew where to come. So I, talked with her and she said that she had tried to report her missing in uh Tahajale to the mm -hmm. tribal so uh Fanny does not live on the reservation she lives on the corner like just off the reservation so she had tried to report um Patricia missing to the tribal Navajo Nation tribal police and they would not take a report because she doesn't live in the Navajo Nation. And Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department would not take a report because they, so that part of Tahajale where she lives is in Bernalillo County. Bernalillo County wouldn't take a report because they wanted Navajo Nation to take a, a missing persons report. And APD wouldn't take a missing persons report because uh, Fanny had last seen her at her home in Tahajale. And so in, in April, and this was June. And so, um, and so Fanny was desperate for me to help her simply file a missing persons report. Sure. And I knew that I might be met with the same sort of resistance from the jurisdictions. And so what I did was I asked her mom sort of, how much of her steps she, she, Fanny, had been able to recreate. And uh, Fanny told me where Patricia had sold her jewelry. And so I went to the Palms and I went to Sunwest Silver. And, and of course, they all knew, knew her and all had agreed that they had not really seen her since April. Um, and, and we were able to conclude that the last time she had been seen was in Albuquerque. And so sequentially, I, I don't recall exactly what I did, but I, I um, did, I was, I don't remember if I made the report or if her mother made the report, but I talked with a police officer by the name of Dan Torgrimson with APD and he's with APD missing persons. And he agreed to take, I believe he took a report, but he made missing person flyers. And then I cashed in a chit with a friend of mine um, who's actually now um, an investigator with the district attorney's office who then was running the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department's ghost unit. Mm -hmm. which did a lot of stuff with um, cell phone um, data. And I asked that person to swear out a search warrant on Patricia's um, cell phone so that we could try and pinpoint her last known location. And uh, between myself, Detective Torgrimson and Detective Hartsock, um, we did that and we her her cell phone had last pinged on the west side of Albuquerque 
<clears throat> at the end of April or early May and then had died. So her cell phone had, had died, had was no longer charging, no longer pinging. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but at that point there was no, um, there was nothing other than my hunch and Fanny's hunch that something was horribly wrong. Right. And I had managed to, get these police officers to take her being missing seriously because I had had such good contact with her and I had been able to show them the the frequency of contact. And, and I think, I think, I don't remember super specifically, but I think that actually detective Torgrimson or maybe detective Hartsock went out to the area where her cell phone had last pinged and it was sort of like a homeless camp. Mm. Um, and now that I'm thinking back, I think it might've been down by the river and not on the West side. Um, but nonetheless, there was really nothing else they could do. So they, they did these flyers, they um, posted the flyers around and that was, that was kind it. of it. That was it. And and um, Fanny would call me and Letitia in tears, which was really uncommon. And she would tell us these incredible stories about Patricia. And, um, <clears throat> you know, and really wonderful stories, too, about how Patricia's, Patricia had this mare I have this crazy cat who's going to start meowing here in a second. And it's going to sound like somebody's dying. She's not dying. <laughs> just old and senile. <laughs> um, so sorry. That's okay. Uh, but um, uh, Patricia had a mare, a horse, a female horse in Tahajale that she really loved. And the the mare had a, had a baby. And um, Letitia, my victim advocate, fostered Chewy for a little while because um fanny was just too distraught to to be with the dog and um i had also um been in touch a little bit with um patricia's brother who was a guy by the name of murphy platero Mm -hmm. um and i don't recall what he he does or but he had been in the plateros as well in the band and i would just sort of hear these stories through anguish about about Patricia and so a lot of my love for Patricia came after she went missing Um, I I recall that she was a jeweler but I had never really inquired with Patricia about that or thought about it until I started talking to the buyers at the Palms and at SunWest Silver who said she's one of she's a really well-known um, jeweler. And, and I believe that her grandmother is Minnie Platero, who's also a, an incredible jeweler. So it's like a generational trade. That's really mm-hmm. beautiful. Yes. And, and it's really interesting because her father, whose name I think is Charlie Platero is a, um, or was, I'm not sure if he's still alive or not, was a Pentecostal a uh, church revivalist who would travel the Navajo nation in a tent and do church revivals with the, the musicians, which was sort of how they, they got their start. And so her family, she was raised Pentecostal, which <clears throat> what I know of Pentecostals and what I know of Dene people, I have, I don't understand <laughs> how those two things jive but um she just had this really rich history and was very tied to being Danae um Mm. and obviously I think everyone would say well where was the boyfriend that you were prosecuting in all of this and where was the the other guy that she was uh, victimized by. Where was he? Well, both of those guys were in jail. Mm. And um, 
I actually ordered their jail phone calls and provided them uh, to law enforcement. Um, and so we waited and we knew that she was dead um, because I knew that I wouldn't have gone without hearing from her and, and her mother knew somehow yeah. her mother was, um, is, I don't want to say superstitious because that diminishes her spiritual intuitive, maybe intuitive. <clears throat> and so she would call me every couple of days and just weep. Yeah. And, um, that was, uh, really hard. And she though was grateful that I believed her yeah. or that I was going to help her do something. Even though, you know, at that point there wasn't anything to be done. So, um, so July rolls around and I was in Colorado with my family, with my then husband and um, where I, I have a cabin in Colorado and it's completely um, remote. There's no cell phone service or anything. And we were leaving the cabin to come, come down. And I um, got a phone call from a friend of mine in homicide. And uh, he told me they had found her body mm. buried on the west side. Um, I, I read that it was... <laughs> That they found her under bricks, under mm -hmm. some rubble. Mm -hmm. So the uh, the homicide. So obviously she was buried, so that made it suspicious. But mm -hmm. she was very decomposed, and so they were not able to determine initially a cause of death, and um, where she was found either was or had been part of a sort of a homeless camp. Um, and um, yeah, I, I believe somebody with a dog had, the dog had found her. And, um, and so it was devastating because, you know, she had been there a while. Yeah. And um, I don't know that she had been there for, you know, all of May and all of June, or I, I'm not, I'm not familiar with the autopsy report. I've, I've never read it. Um, but, um, you know, that was a source, that was a great source of pain for her mother. Sure. To think that, um because the Dene culture is very uh, specific on how the dead should be buried. And um, that, that scenario, knowing that information was very, very, very upsetting to her mom. And then um, with autopsy, when there's just bones, yeah, there's not a lot to autopsy in terms of the way that we think of, you know, a body being, cut into and without, you know, a hole in the skull or some a fracture kind of in the neck or something. Yeah. Something yeah. very clear on the bones. You can't decide, you can't determine the, um, the cause of death. And so what I know collaterally is that her body was sent to, I believe the FBI or maybe a forensic uh, pathologist looked at her body and then uh, ruled it a homicide, but I don't know what the findings were that, that made it a homicide, but it was a homicide. And, and then finally her mother received her body back. And um, because at that time her, her death had not been ruled a homicide, she, Patricia was not, or her mother was not able to collect New Mexico Crime Victims Reparation Commission's funds in order to bury her. Mm -hmm. And so Letitia 
uh, had previously worked as a mortician at Daniel's and got them to donate um, everything for her burial. And she was, her funeral was actually on um, October 9th, I think. Yeah, October 9th of 2015 which was my last day at the district attorney's office and myself and the homicide detective went to her services. Um, and her mother made us these incredible, beautiful, big blue rose corsages that I still have. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple of follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that struck me when you were telling this was the fact that the county sheriff's office was not willing to help. Um, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I mean, I don't understand the workings of law enforcement because I'm not in it, but um, it seems pretty clear that if somebody's in Bernalillo County, like that, that's definitely their jurisdiction. I get the idea that it's on the border but that just seems like, in my opinion, uh, maybe laziness. I don't know if that's, if that's appropriate to say, but that's just what it looks like from the outside. I mean, I think that it's kind of a combination of a lot of things, which is um, when somebody goes missing, it doesn't necessarily mean that a crime has occurred. And so mm-hmm. the cops really try to only focus on crimes. Um, the area where she lives, there, there are many areas across the state that, um, have this weird jurisdictional issues of, is this tribal land? Is this state land? Is this federal land? Where is this? And, and that's not atypical to, to have, um, law enforcement as well as for example cyfd saying that's not our jurisdiction that's navajo nation or and so there are these weird pockets all across the state where there are very frequently these jurisdictional quibblings um and tahajali is sort of one of those areas there's a lot of areas in grants there's a lot of areas up around tosuke and pawake that are for example, there's a piece of property that like, and I I think it's only 10 acres maybe, and it's privately owned, but it's really a no man's land because the state won't take jurisdiction over it. The tribal police won't take jurisdiction over it. BIA won't. So in this family like lives out there with sort of no law enforcement capabilities. So, wow. So, so those questions are always sort of out there and um but I also think that a component of it was well this is just a drunk Indian right who goes back and forth from Tajale to Albuquerque and um you know she's drunk somewhere she'll turn up when she sobers up this is the kind of stuff that drives me nuts yeah the the attitude of oh it's just a sex worker oh it's just another drug addict oh it's just another alcoholic you know, no matter what somebody's going through in their life, no matter what they're dealing with, it doesn't excuse horrible things happening to them. Uh, they may put themselves in precarious situations, but it still doesn't mean they deserve to be murdered and right. forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too that what I'm really feeling about COVID is that we are seeing the hundreds of years of institutional racism Mm -hmm. that is wiping these communities out and people can say oh well natives drink and that's why they're more susceptible but i think for for our native communities like alcoholism was not a choice right Mm -hmm. (laughs) like like it was it was something that was introduced to them and was put on them by by our our history against native peoples are by our colonization of these communities. And so, so while those things may be true that they, that, that natives suffer alcoholism higher than what other, whatever other population, I don't know the statistics on that, but, but 
to me, the, the first question is whose fault is that? And, and part of the answer is it doesn't matter whose fault it is. Right. right? But the other part of it is that it's not their fault. And like, if, if we, we, we cannot, and this probably sounds really paternalistic, but it's disturbing to me that we have created this, this white kind of Western civilization and expected these tribal communities to fit into it. And then when they struggle within it, we're like, well, you're an alcoholic. I don't know what to fucking tell you. And like, we, we have to take responsibility and, and say, yes, it's important that cops on the street care about another drunk Indian, but what is the, what is the bigger question? And it's yeah. racism. It's a lot. It's a lot of things. There's a lot to unpack, and um, I'm certainly not qualified to do that. But uh, why not? <laughs> well, because I don't feel like I'm uh, educated enough about all of it. Uh, I, I've learned a lot on this show and and talking mm-hmm. to people, and and I've known a lot just growing up here. But uh, I, I honestly don't feel like I am qualified to say what's going to fix that because I don't know that anybody has that answer. But I know that, that I think you're right. The, the, the hundreds of years of oppression and neglect and trauma and trauma and also wanting them to, like you said, conform to what we have, but also like not allowing them to do that as well and saying to a certain extent, you're a sovereign nation. But that's only as far as I think that that makes sense for me. And then until that point, then I'm going to be in control. And that whole thing is completely backwards and crazy. You know, I really want my listeners to humanize every victim of crime. Because everybody deserves to be able to live their lives without that, you know, without people harming them. And if people do harm them, then they deserve dignity and they deserve justice and they don't deserve to be treated like crap because they're a victim. Patricia can't speak for herself anymore. No. And she didn't deserve what happened to her, no matter what her circumstance was. So it's probably going to sound really preachy, but I'm very passionate about this, you know, being somewhat of a victim myself um I hate, that. I hate that word <laughs> but um you know i i just i want everyone to see that these these are people and patricia meant something to a lot of people and people loved her and they miss her now and that shouldn't be discounted and she was me on a on a different day right i mean there, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily believe in God, but I really believe in like there, for, but the grace of God go I. Go you know? I. Yeah. But, but she, and she was very resilient and she was very, um, you know, she, she would, I think, I think that, I think that one of the things that we, we discount it is the ability of people with drug and alcohol problems to understand that they have a problem, right. Yeah. You know, that, that somehow we think that they don't know, <laughs> Or that, they, or that they have a choice, like they could just you yeah. could just decide to stop. Them. Yeah, yeah, you know. And so she was very. Um, she, I don't want to say that she was unashamed because I think that she was ashamed, but I think that she honored her own resiliency, and and that that is what that is what led her to keep in touch with me, and and that is what led her to be this very consistent person, even in the face of this kind of thing that that people want to use as an excuse to disregard everything about you that was remarkable to me that that is that is why she always stuck in my memory uh, i mean even before even before her mom came into my office that day that that you you can be in the presence of greatness and and witness these kind of real truths about people's core um in the middle of just sort of chaos and and homelessness and 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 abuse abuse you know she hit she she was somebody who was abused by everybody she came into contact with you know but she still she chose to come she would choose to come into town she would choose to 
kind of hang out with this like the more the more the transient native population that was she was not homeless right she was transient but she hung out with a homeless population that was more um you know that didn't have couldn't go back to the reservation or chose not to and 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 in that she walked between these two worlds very consciously and i doubt she wanted to be an alcoholic but but she she sort of bargained it you know she she had her own way with it and and it's like she accepted yeah. that was that was what was happening and mm-hmm. and tried to make the most of it sounds like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah. that and 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 she still was in touch with all of this kind of family support that that really was unique yeah that that told me that she sort of loved herself more than a lot of the other victims that I come into contact with who have, who have completely eschewed all of, all of those connections that, that she was always trying to find that, that connection within herself and that, that righteousness of, of standing up for herself and of, of, and she would say to me, like, I know people think I'm just a drunk Indian because, because she and I would talk. I remember one time she and I talked about, um, after John Kelly died, see, I'm remembering all this stuff. After John Kelly died, she had called me because she had heard that he had died on the news or something. Mm-hmm. And she called me and said, you know, he was the only one that was nice to me. Everybody thinks I'm just a drunk Indian, you know, and, and, and it was such a poignant because people think that, that the people they judge don't know <laughs> what right. they're judging, you know, <laughs> right? like, you know, it's like, I know you think I'm fat. It's okay if you say <laughs> you're fat. Like, I, I know that I'm fat. <laughs> so, you know, and she was so grateful that he had taken her seriously. And that then in turn, that Letitia and I had taken her seriously. And that we didn't care. Yeah. And that, that in spite of what a weird case it was, because factually it was kind of run of the mill, but but my connections to the case, because... I got the copy of the 911 tape, which was this guy calling the cops. And I was like, holy shit, that's my friend's husband. <laughs> and that never, you know, the yeah, nine, that's anonymous 911 callers, you know, there are, you never find them. So, so I just remember Patricia thinking that it was very, very synchronous that, that, that I knew the, 911. I mean, it was just, I don't know. Yeah, those are strange connections. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, the uh, defense attorney on the case with her boyfriend really liked her too because she had done a pretrial interview prior to her going missing. And in fact, we were set for trial in June before she died or before her body was found. And her his lawyer liked her so much that he was like, I want my guy to plea, even though we think she's dead. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And his guy was like, no, go fuck yourself, which made (laughs) us think that the guy must be involved, but there, there was never anything to prove it. Yeah. So uh, as it stands now, Uh it's a cold case. Uh It's unsolved. So it's not closed. Do you know anything about any potential theories, suspects, ideas, anything that you can share? I mean, not really. I mean, I know that that the detective, I just talked to him about the case a couple of days ago because, like I said, I tried to to get a copy of the case. Um, I, I know that he he knew because when when she went, when I found out she was missing, you know, I had told everybody in the homicide department, like, I want you to call me if you find her. Mm-hmm. And so he's the one who had called me. Um, and so he knew, he knew how important she was to me and he really beat the bushes. You know, he went and he talked to the palms. He talked to, um, the sell the buyers at Sunwest Silver. He tracked down the the last people that had 
been of what we think was the last time she was seen alive. And he really followed every lead that he could. And they all kind of fizzled out. And, mm-hmm. and I know that he left homicide actually shortly after that. And he and I still talk about how much the case breaks our hearts. Yeah. And actually I just, um, uh, so Letitia still talks to Fanny and I do not talk to Fanny because I feel heartbroken about it. And it, and it's, I can't, I can't handle her pain, but I just sent her a long letter and some of my daughter's really bad preschool artwork (laughs) and, and some masks Oh, nice. Yeah, and Tahajali just last week. And so I do, she just had her gallbladder out. <laughs> her mom oh. did. Or had gallstones or something, I'm not sure. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I just, you know, I'm just going to plea with my listeners right now that if you know anything, um, or if you saw anything, or if you have any rumors or ideas or anything, please, please go to Crime Stoppers. Go to the anonymous tip line online. Uh, you don't have to give any of your personal information to leave a tip about this case. Um, it's, a, it's a shame that she was treated with such disrespect and disregard for her life and, and for who she was as a person. Yeah. It really is. And you, it's, it's heartbreaking that you sometimes learn more about people after they're gone. And, and for me, I have regretted that I didn't, I don't know, hold on to her more somehow or, or give her resources, but you know, she probably wouldn't have taken them. <laughs> You know, that's who she was. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to share about her, about the case? or? I just want to say that it doesn't matter who you are, um, where you come from, what you do that's good or bad. Everybody deserves to have closure, <laughs> whatever that looks like. And that, and that her mom really deserves to have a way of knowing what happened to her daughter. And, and I think that it's clear that Patricia suffered and, and there's no, there's no taking away that reality. I'm moving cause I have to plug my computer in, you know, there's no taking away that knowledge that, that she suffered. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, to provide her mom with even more closure about, about, because I think part of it is that her mom wants to believe that her daughter had value by this person being prosecuted. Sure. Which is not unlike sort of what you're going through, I think. Yeah. I think it's what a lot of people in this situation are going through. As much as you don't want to admit that you need that validation you do. Yeah. You know, I thought about that after our conversation Mm -hmm. uh, when you asked me about that and I got a little offended with you at that moment, but you know what? I I do want that. And I, and I think that Patricia's family deserves that. Um, And it's the least that could happen for them. Yeah. I mean, it is the least. And I think the good news is that her death was eventually ruled a homicide. I don't mm-hmm. remember um, the, the findings, but there was enough evidence in her body on her, wherever, you know, however they did that to, to rule it a homicide definitively, which is um, very you know, it, it, it draws a line in the sand. And I think that, you know, APD homicide is struggling right now. I think, I think everybody's struggling right now with COVID. Um, yeah. But I, 
I, I do know that the, the case agent, um, the detective, I know that he cares very, very deeply about it. And, and, and I know that, that the cold case detectives do too. And I, I know that in her death, her death will be, her death will be taken seriously. And to the extent that, that if they can find somebody, I think that they would prosecute him. But again, you know, you, (laughs) you found, I mean, there's somebody that could be prosecuted. (laughs) We know who it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So maybe that's just me being naive. I don't know. Well, let's hope that that's the case. And let's hope that I, I agree. I think it's good that it was ruled a homicide in the sense that now there's no statute of limitations. And now uh, for as long as this case is cold and open, you know, there's an opportunity and there's a chance that it could still result in some sort of action. Yeah. So let's hope for that, I guess. And I just want to say one more thing, just okay. a little shout out. So today is May 9th that we're yeah. recording this. And today is the ninth anniversary of a homicide um, um, of a woman by the name of Leah Sanders, who was killed by her boyfriend. Mm. And it is the homicide case that made me quit smoking. Really? Yes. And so I still keep in touch with Leah's mom, who's a delightful human being by the name of Zinta who lives in California. And so um, her murderer, Leah's murder is in prison. Woo-hoo. And, uh, yeah, I prosecuted him. And uh, so every May 9th comes along and I, I think about Leah and her, her mom. Yeah. Well, here's to Leah. Here's to all the victims of domestic violence mm-hmm. and to Patricia and her family and to everyone else still seeking justice in New Mexico. Thank you. And Eric, really, truly, like, I, you have been such a gift in my life. And you've really, um, you've really clarified a lot of things for me about who I am and who I want to be and who I want, what I want my life to be going forward. And I just feel that I just feel so blessed. And I just feel so excited about your show and about what you're doing and the format and just everything about you. So I love Lydia, but I really, really love you. (laughs) I I just, it's just been such a blessing. Thank you, Edna. And I, again, can't thank you enough for your help. And I know we're, we're still working. Um, Yes. we We might have a little bit of wind taken out of our sails because of the coronavirus, but, um, I, I am looking forward to what else we can do together. And likewise, yeah. Well, with that, I want to I want to thank you for uh, joining me, and and I want to thank, thank my listeners for for listening to Patricia's story. Again, if you know anything, or if you know anyone who knows anything, please urge them to call Crime Stoppers or submit an anonymous tip online. And with that, stay safe, New Mexico. Thanks again for listening to True Consequences. Follow us on social media on Instagram and Facebook at True Consequences Pod and on Twitter at True Cons Pod. True Consequences is hosted, written, and produced by me, your host, Eric Carter Landine. Thanks for listening and stay safe, New Mexico.